You're listening to Inside the Times and the Sunday Times, and I'm your host, Emma Tucker, Deputy Editor of the Times. Today's story focuses on the political and humanitarian disaster in Yemen. The Times' diplomatic correspondent, Catherine Philp, spent three weeks there, travelling into the heart of the regions most hit by Saudi-led bombing. Catherine, tell us more about your trip. Well, Yemen seems to be the unforgotten war of our time. It is grossly underreported, mostly because of the logistical difficulties of getting into the country and getting around because of the Saudi blockade on it. Uh, But we got to a point where the United Nations was warning that it was at the brink of the worst famine in a generation and the war was continuing. The editor decided it also ought to be the focus of our um, charity appeal for Christmas. So it was essentially a dual mission to to report for the charity, but also to get a glimpse, a a proper in-depth glimpse into a story that had been very little covered. So as you said, it's it's been a very underreported war. Mm. So it was probably hard for you to know what to expect. Did you have any preconceived ideas about what you'd find when you got there? I mean, I've covered sort of extreme humanitarian need before. I think I think one of the reasons you don't see it, one of the things that you do usually see in these situations is you see sort of huge refugee outflows. And you didn't see that in Yemen because there's nowhere for them to go because they're under a blockade. So on three sides, they've got water and Oman, which is a completely closed border. And then on the, on the northern side, it's the Saudis who were, you know, their adversary in the war. So they're not going to go there. Right. In fact, that border was also shut. So you didn't see that. You saw displaced within the country. But again, you know, possibly not the... Ex- you know, massive numbers you might expect. I mean, the need was incredible because some people had fled four years ago and they were still stuck, however far away from their homes. But uh, you saw a lot of people in their own homes in grave need. A lot of people, I mean, it's quite unusual to see people need food aid in their own homes and medical aid in their own homes. It's usually something you see in refugee camps. So seeing really the breakdown of a country... And and actually, I suppose the thing that was most shocking to me was that I think until I went, there was a sense that the humanitarian disaster was painted possibly by aid agencies who didn't want to complicate their access politically, was, was presented as a sort of byproduct of the war. You know, all wars cause humanitarian disasters. I think what really was driven home to me by being there was that it was a deliberate aim of the people prosecuting the war, that the Saudis were bombing roads in order to stop people moving and including supplies of food and medicine. They were bombing water facilities. I I saw, you know, uh, water purification facilities that had been hit, which had uh, by airstrikes that had nothing around them that, you know, could possibly have been another target and, and, and the missile just strayed. And it was very, very clear that they were, um, they were deliberately essentially conducting something like a sort of medieval siege on the people there in order to sort of squeeze them into submission. You were there for three weeks Mm. in total. What were your first impressions on landing? I think one of the most shocking things when you go somewhere that you've heard is, is on the brink of a generational famine is to see that the markets were full of food and you know sort of tumbling over with fresh vegetables and the fish market in Arden was full of you know the the day's catch and brimming with food but it's food that people can't afford because the currency has collapsed people have stopped getting their salaries and the cheaper food that 
ordinary Yemenis eat is imported. And of course, there's a blockade that has squeezed that coming in. So even the price of that has gone up. But things like fresh vegetables and fish that I saw and, and was able to eat are not available. Who can afford this food? Fighters can afford it. It's one of the few sources of income available to Yemenis. And it's, you know, one of the reasons that is fueling the war, I suppose, because there's an, uh, an unending supply of young men who have absolutely no other means to to earn a living. There is something of a war economy. There's always people in war who get rich. And, you know, yeah, there are, there are people who are better off. There are people, well, I mean, Yemenis who are lucky enough to work for foreign aid organisations for one. But I would say, yes, mostly the, the, the fighters and the people in charge on either side are the ones who can afford the most. So tell me about some of the people you met while you were out there. Mm. Were there any especially, I mean, obviously you, you were there for three weeks, but were there any especially memorable encounters? Oh, goodness, there were several. I mean, some for the wrong reasons, um, because they were so sad. I think very, very early on, maybe my first or second day, we went to the hospital in Sana, the main hospital where they had a malnutrition ward. And that had actually been sort of taken over by UNICEF because the doctors were no longer being paid and they were starting to leave and try and find other jobs. And then UNICEF came in and, and gave them their salaries so that people could actually be treated. And so children were being brought there who had the worst cases of malnutrition. And there was a little girl called Hajar and she was four months old. And she... She sort of looked simultaneously absolutely tiny, like a newborn, and incredibly old because all her flesh had just sort of melted, vanished, but her skin was loose on her face and on her arms. So she was sort of wrinkled up and she really was too weak or, you know, to even cry or, or really move. And she was just sort of lying there very placidly on the bed. And then her father showed me on his phone a picture of her at two months old when she'd been completely healthy and 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 I think that was almost a bigger shock than seeing her in that state. And what was Mercy Corps doing to help somebody like this little girl? They they had something rather innovative going on where they were actually so they had mobile clinics that would go out into remote areas looking for children with signs of malnutrition and then they could bring them to you know, a hospital that had the expertise to deal with them and then they could refer it up. But once someone had got to a big hospital like the one in Sana, what Mercy Corps would do was literally uh, give the parents enough money to stay with their child and and be able to buy food. Uh, Because lots of people won't leave their home to bring their child for help because they don't have the money for the journey and then they don't have the money to stay there once they're there. They can't afford, you know, suddenly you're in the big city, the prices are even higher, you you can only get food from, you know, a restaurant or a cafe or something. So that's what they do to make sure that those children have a chance while they're in hospital. And did you travel out, out of Sana to some of the areas uh, affected and to the places where some of these people came from? And how dangerous was it for you to do that? The north didn't feel terribly dangerous. And I think one of the reasons is it's under very tight control of the Houthis. They're the northern Shia rebels who first took over the capital and um, started moving south and then um, the Saudi coalition came in to push them back. So they've got very tight grip over the north and um, that gives it a sort of a sense of stability. So it felt quite safe, but there were just 
infinite number of um, checkpoints along the road. So and, and that contributed to a sense of security, but also there's a lot of our men around and actually a lot of very young, I mean, children and teenagers holding guns. When you're confronted with a 14 year old with a Kalashnikov who's got a big wad of cat in his mouth. Yeah, that can be a little touch and go. But we traveled out. I think our first big trip out of Sana was towards Hadeda, the port that was under an offensive from the south. And we traveled. It, it's, it's, most, it's extraordinarily beautiful. So you climb into these incredibly beautiful mountains and sort of stunning architecture of these villages with this multi-story, you know, stone buildings they have in Yemen. And then we went down towards um, Marwit, which is an area where a lot of people had fled from Hadeda. And, I mean, it was, it was funny when sometimes when you... Same happened when we were outside Tais, where battles could, were going on. You could hear very distantly the sound of shelling and airstrikes and stuff, but you're in this kind of bucolic setting, and it all looks so beautiful you can't quite believe that you know all this need is happening around you but that area was full of people who'd, who'd fled from Hadeda and were now camping out and it was putting huge pressure on resources there. And you were traveling with the Times photographer Jack Hill. Yeah. Did this present problems for you uh, when particularly in your encounters with women? Yes um, Yemen's one of the most conservative places I've ever been and that's kind of saying something because I've been to quite a few but the women are almost exclusively veiled certainly in public in the street or when traveling outside their workplace or their home they are veiled which means they wear the kneecap so they're covered from their foreheads to just under their eye you'll only see a strip around their eyes so Jack just took pictures obviously of photographers don't interfere. That's part of the process. You don't interfere with what you find. You simply take pictures of what's happening. We wanted to humanise these visually, these incredible stories they were telling us. But the pictures just, you know, they come back looking very, very similar all the time. And so eventually, I think it was in our last week, we started to ask each other whether we, maybe we could suggest to them if they were comfortable to lift the veil, they could do that. And... Um, so we did, and and more than half did it. Um, I would say, yeah, about 70% did it, uh, if we were sort of sitting with them in their home. But it, we always did it after we sat down and talked through part of their stories. So I think that by that point, there was already, you know, a bit of a bond between us or a bit of trust. I mean, obviously, it's a desperate situation, but were there um, stories you heard that made you feel more optimistic for Yemen? Definitely. And I mean, since since day one, to be honest, I mean, one of the first people I spoke to was a woman who had come to Sana to learn how to, um, well, to, yeah, to learn all the aspects of setting up a business as a seamstress. And she had an amazing story because she she'd been married off at 14, which is pretty normal there. And she hadn't she wasn't able to read or write. And after she had her first child, she started to teach herself. And when she taught herself to read and write, she started to teach the women in the village. She thought she would be able to become a teacher and be certified by the government as one, but then the war happened, and even normal teachers, real teachers, were getting their salaries stopped because of the politics behind the central bank. And so she sort of had to think again, and her husband had been a fighter, and he was captured by the Houthis, who released him after six months and said you made him sign a pledge he wouldn't fight again so the family had no income 
And when she heard of this opportunity to, to train with Mercy Corps, she, she seized it and she went to Sana. She tried to fight her daughter being married off at 17, engaged at 17. And she'd lost the battle because she said it was the decision of the oldest man in the family, which was her father-in-law. But since she was on the cusp of going back as the sole breadwinner, she said, I'm getting new respect. Everything's going to be different when I go home. And there was a sort of double-edged sword to this dynamic. So um, the woman who was teaching her said to me, the war has changed everything for women. It's turned everything upside down. They've got more responsibility because the men are fighting. But for some women, obviously, that was a crushing sense of responsibility and too much because they were taking on the entire family's duties and and not just, you know, the the ones that gave them more status. So another woman I met called Banan in Thais province, she had lost her husband. He was a fighter and was killed. She hadn't had the happiest marriage. So in a sense, it was more of a practical loss, I think, than an emotional one, though she did say, you know, my children lost their father. and that's. But she had moved in with her mother. And there was just something incredibly nurturing about that household I went to that they'd sort of banded together. Her mother had lost her husband, Banan's father, I think within a week of Bannon's husband. So so it was this sort of house, and there was a younger sister there who was unmarried. So it was this household of women and then two little kids of three and four. And they'd all just sort of pulled together. She, she was adamant she would never marry again because in Yemen, if you have children and you marry again, you would have to give up your children, that the new husband would not accept another man's children. So she just said, that's that's not an option for me. I'm not going to do it. And they, they'd made a, they'd created their own kind of family in in a place where everything is usually very conservative and conventional and she was also hoping to get on one of those livelihood projects because she had she'd actually finished school so she could read and write so that was a very hopeful story and she was someone i could see had you know really decided to make you know something out of the what could have been a disaster for her and her family pick herself up and 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 try and make something new. Looking ahead, do you feel in the slightest bit optimistic for Yemen? That's a very good question. I mean, in one respect, I think one of the other things I I came across, that, that first woman I talked about, the seamstress who was going back and going to become the breadwinner, I was trying, I, I was asking her what her family had gone without before she had got this opportunity. And she was sort of squirming to tell me because she was too proud. She didn't, and she was sort of saying, you know, well, we could get by, we could get by. And I found that in all these people I met that there was an incredible resilience and a sort of sense of pride and a wish to, they didn't really want to be in this situation and to take charity. So that, I, I think, as a sort of, sort of national characteristic almost, that, that resilience is very hopeful. Catherine, thank you very much for telling us about your time in Yemen. This has been produced by Alexis Sogal and Sam Joyner. Additional research was done by James Stannard.